Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who are interested in transforming their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. On today's episode of The Forest Garden, we have the pleasure to interview Lisa DiPiano, Director of the Carbon Farming Initiative at UMass Amherst. Join us to learn about Lisa's introduction to regenerative systems, her current work with silvopasture at the Stockbridge School of Agriculture, and her work with the Common Share Food Co-op. While digging into these topics, we also discuss hybrid chestnuts, the importance of permaculture ethics at a community scale, local currency as a solution to advance sustainability, and much more. Stick with us. Hey there, everyone. Today, we're lucky enough to be interviewing Lisa DiPiano. I'm lucky enough to be at the same school that Lisa teaches at, which is UMass Amherst. I'm actually studying in the landscape architecture department, the same department that years ago Lisa got a a master's in regional planning in. I'm getting a master's in landscape architecture. And it's funny enough, we have some of the same professors from back in the day who she learned from and I learned from. So that's kind of how we are friends today in 2021. And I was first introduced to Lisa's work through a documentary called Inhabit a Permaculture Perspective, which is actually like part of the reason why I decided to come to UMass to pursue graduate study because I recognized, hey, like there's some really cool stuff going on in Western Massachusetts, like what's happening. So, so anyways, welcome Lisa and I am just sort of wondering to sort of start us off here, like, how did you first get introduced to permaculture or regenerative systems, sustainability, this whole world of weird, unusual plants that we operate within? What was the kind of the, the thing that started it off for you? Sure. And, and sometimes it's hard for me to actually pinpoint what I consider to be the beginning. And, you know, it's, it, I think it's a, it was a, a long road to uh, finding permaculture and learning about regenerative agriculture and just, you know, wanting to think about solutions to problems that I was seeing in the world. You know, one, one of my ways to it was I was going to college in West Virginia in the 90s, in the late 90s, and got really involved with the struggle to stop mountaintop removal. I was actually really fortunate to get to travel down to the southern coal fields in uh, southern Appalachia and got to see firsthand just the astronomical effects of mountaintop removal mining on the planet and the people there. There was a, a man that was a little bit of a whistleblower. His name is Larry Gibson, and he was inviting people onto his property which was right in Cayford Mountain, right in the middle of a, a mountaintop removal site. And so he, he was inviting news programs and, and we went down as student activists and got to really walk on his land that his family had been living in for generations and generations. He pointed out his family's burial site where he could just point to all of his ancestors and had a really deep connection with the land and, and didn't sell out to the pressures of the coal companies and was in fact really sharing with people the effects. So I'll never forget the image when he walked us out to the edge of his property and, and we looked out and you know, really as far as the eye could see, 
the only way I could describe it was, was almost looking at a moonscape. There was nothing green, nothing living, just the, the scale of it was nothing like I expected to just the immense scale of it. And that was just one mountaintop removal site in one part of West Virginia. So the scale at which the destruction of the natural environment for the mining and extraction of fossil fuels and all of the communities that are displaced because of the, the extraction properties and, and our use of the, the fossil fuels and just the extractive economy became really, really clear to me. And also the connections between social, uh, ecological and economic health and just how those three things are really interconnected. And it's, it's really hard to take one apart without the other. The other thing that made a big impact is Larry actually walked us over to his house and just showed us bullet holes where he'd literally been threatened by people in the community that really for generations, you know, the coal industry was the backbone of the economy for a long time. And just there's a lot of pressure for him to, to be quiet and kind of not really share what was going on. And so that, that was a big pivotal moment to me where I got to peer behind the curtain, almost like getting to see something that we're not supposed to see and just, just how dependent and our lives are and the, the impacts that it have, has on communities and ecologies that we don't even realize. I think after that, you know, I, I couldn't really turn on a light or turn on the oil tank without really feeling connected to where that energy was coming from and really thought at that moment, you know, I was in my twenties, very idealistic and, and thinking like, okay, there's gotta be a better way for us to meet our need for fuel and heat and all these energy demands without totally destroying the planet and people and health in, in the process. Kind of long, long story short, after I graduated, I eventually found myself down in Guatemala. It was down there that I first heard about permaculture. I was working in a, a small village, mostly Mayan community on Lago Titlan and, and got connected to a project there called um, Ihats, which is Kachakal. It's one of the 24 Mayan languages. It's uh, the word Ihats is Kachakal for seed. And so that was a, a permaculture food forest. And that was my first introduction to the word and to the concept. You know, it was in that village that I really got my first lessons from the farm, Mayan farmers directly on a lot of things and just getting to bear witness to the immense abundance of a tropical food forest and getting to see the ways in which they organized banana tree rings as gray water systems to take up the soapy gray water that was draining to the low point and using that as, as fertilizer and using the, for the bananas and, and cleaning up some of the water there. And so got introduced to a lot of great solutions to, and just something clicked in me when I saw that. I was like, wow, this is taking a lot of the problems that I was wrestling with in my time in West Virginia and, and actually turning them into really visionary, really elegant and, and simple solutions to some of the biggest problems that, that we're facing. Yeah, that's, that's quite the, the origin story. I feel like it takes some sort of event or some, something that someone witnesses to really galvanize them for sometimes their whole life to, towards a cause or towards a, a purpose or career. And so 
do you feel like you've been able to continue on with permaculture and keep that a part of your mindset and thought process throughout your career thus far? I mean, I looking at your your CV, it, it seems like you're you've kept permaculture in your life, you know, ever since that the first PDC. And I, I guess my question is, I know when I first took my permaculture design course, I realized like, okay, this is important. I want to do something with this, but it took me a really long time to figure out what I was going to do with permaculture and where it was going to take me. Did you know, like right away after you started taking your first permaculture design course, like what you wanted to do with it, or was it like an evolution for, for a long time? It was definitely, I didn't, I didn't even know there was such a thing as design courses when I was in Guatemala. It was, you know, just learning by working alongside and, and mainly getting schooled by just my inability to just the, the sheer amount of physical labor and stamina that the, the farm workers had down there. You know, we would, they would be running circles around me with wheelbarrows. And anyway, that was maybe one of the biggest lessons was like, wow, just, you know, my own inability to even come close to how hard they really were working and, and just the, the skill that they possessed and, and, and deep knowledge. And yeah, I guess when I, when I came back to the U.S., I started graduate school in regional planning at UMass. And when I was at grad school, you know, I was studying city and regional planning, really thinking about redesigning cities to get off of fossil fuels. I was also a big bicycle advocate and, and really interested in mixed use development, bringing back thriving downtowns, biking, and, and, and that kind of thing. When I was going to grad school, I saw a small flyer in the hallway, and that was for a weekend course that John O'Niger and his wife Kemper were teaching at the Sirius Eco Village. And for me, that was like, wait, permaculture is here too. I just, I didn't, I didn't realize it was a global movement. And so it was, it was through taking that weekend course that I realized it was a larger design system and movement. I eventually did take a, a design course out in California with Starhawk and Penny Livingston. It was the earth activist training. It was a really great course for me because it combined just lessons in community organizing and activism along with some of the design skills and techniques that permaculture offers. You know, I was kind of in the trajectory around planning and community design. And then I just saw permaculture really fitting in nicely with that. So I was able to do a, a PDC as part of my graduate school. And at the time, you know, at UMass, I was like, wow, this should be taught here. Why isn't UMass teaching classes in permaculture design? And, and so that was kind of an early seed. Little did I know that like 20 years later, I'd be back teaching those courses. Wow. That's ultimately what happened, you know, through a long, long and kind of winding road. I eventually came back and am now teaching permaculture design certificate courses through the university. That's pretty inspiring. I, I wasn't really aware that many universities were were offering courses like that. I, I really wish that my, I went to the University of Connecticut. I wish that they had that back in, uh, let's see, what would have been in 2007, 2008. That would have definitely saved me some time. One of the things 
and we could tie this into sort of the your journey along the way and sort of where where along the way that you tied into this world but one of the things i wanted to talk about was the carbon farming initiative and so were you always aware of the climate change impact of regenerative agriculture or permaculture or what you were uh, working in and studying in or, or did that come later and if so what was the impetus of like the or a light bulb moment of of discovering how the way we grow food actually can affect the the climate you know i th i think the frame of climate change for me using that frame as a newer frame before that i think a lot of the focus on people in this movement was was around the idea of peak oil in the like early 2000s that's that was like what everybody was talking about and they're like okay you know oil's getting more expensive to extract our whole economy runs on oil our whole heating and food and everything all of our systems run off of cheap fossil fuels so it, it was less about climate change even though that was in the radar i don't think it was as acute as it is right now and you know what i like about permaculture is it's just you know like a tree it's doing so many things at once so not only is it you know by growing our own things like food forests and using perennial tree crops to sequester carbon out of the atmosphere you know we're also doing things like cleaning the air and improving air quality we're also connecting people to perhaps their ancestry we're also connecting people back to the way that indigenous people have grown food here for millennia you know we're also improving soil and helping soil not erode and so it's it's that kind of multiple functions that really bring the kind of the magic of permaculture out to me so so i think that the carbon frame is a new frame and mostly for me just because of it's a frame that needs to be uplifted right now especially in this window where we can you know have have some time to reverse the effects of of fossil fuel burning and, and climate change. So it's been a, a more relevant frame for me more recently. I really only became aware of the, the carbon sequestration aspect of regenerative agriculture or agroforestry probably 2016, 2015. And in the grand scheme of things, it's it's something we should have been talking about decades, if not centuries ago. So I'm glad I'm glad it's part of the discussion now, and I'm I'm glad it, there are projects like like yours well underway. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the carbon farming initiative, and if it's helpful to define silvopasture as as part of that? That might be a good place to start. I think our audience is more. For, some people are familiar with agroforestry and silvopasture, but others are more more familiar with the backyard forest garden approach only. So let's see, Carbon Farming Initiative, I started with a group of students back in 2017, and it was actually a former forest garden that was on the Ag Learning Center, and the Ag Learning Center is a 40-acre piece of ag land that's connected to the University of Massachusetts and the Stockbridge School of Agriculture. That's really a, a laboratory and research space, as well as a, a site of, a, of the student farm, a state apiary organic apple orchards and grapes. It's a really great place where, where students get to get hands-on opportunities to learn about all these different ways of growing food and professors get to engage in kind of grounded 
researched. And so we have a two acre plot of land there where we're doing silvopasture, which is the intentional integration of uh, tree crops with animals. And so we are growing hybrid Chinese chestnuts, grazing Dorset sheep in the alleyways in between the chestnuts. And we're also monitoring the amount of carbon that we are sequestering in the soil by both the planting of the tree crops and the rotational grazing of the, the sheep. And we're, we have a couple different ways that we're testing the soil, both in the laboratory and then also using some soil proxy tests in the field, working with NOFA mass on, on doing the, the soil proxy tests. And also really looking at bringing back chestnuts as a perennial staple crop. You know, it's been used by native peoples in the region for millennia as a staple crop. My own ancestries, um, part of my ancestry is Italian and, and chestnuts are a crop that, you know, my dad grew up growing and tasting. And, you know, right now the U.S. really is a net importer of chestnuts. And so there's a big opportunity to actually grow this as a, a tree crop that is a, a staple, you know, it's a, it's a carbohydrate, it's gluten-free, it's very quick from planting to harvest, you know, it's, we've got fruit off of our trees in as little as four years after planting. In terms of, of nuts, you know, very relatively easy to actually harvest the nuts and, and cure and, and, and use. So, uh, there's several other projects in the area that are growing chestnuts, and we're all looking into kind of creating this cooperative infrastructure for sharing knowledge and also for the processing and marketing of the nuts. Yeah, I, I agree. I think chestnuts are delicious, and it, I'm surprised that they're not more popular than they are. I think a lot of people just see them as a seasonal mm -hmm. treat for Christmas, if, if at all. And some people don't even, you know, never even tried them and, and don't even know what they are. Ben and I recently just went to the like a 1931 planting of American chestnuts and chestnut hybrids at Sleeping Giant in Hamden, Connecticut. And if you haven't been, Lisa, you absolutely have to go. It's like this epic. Uh. It's like this, you know, 100 year old epic food forest where the, some of the original cultivars of really popular really sought after chestnuts are like Lockwood is one of the cultivars that we checked out and also the sleeping giant cultivar itself. Yeah. Yeah. We, we actually have sleeping giant. We, we've got some of the sleeping giants at, at the ALC. Oh, wow. And they're, so they're hundred year old trees. Yeah. Still producing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, wow. we checked out the, we, we took a picture next to the sleeping giant mother tree and it's crazy because there's like documentation on all of this too and they know the parentage of it like they know who the father is and everything it's just mind-blowing but yeah wow. you should come, come down sometime and I'll, I'll give you a little tour i know i now know the place all in all in him yeah all in hampton connecticut all in hampton connecticut who knew that there was just such an epic repository buzz fervor goes down there quite a bit to collect material but i think he's more interested in like the the heart nuts and some of the other mm -hmm. like you know chestnuts at this point he's like oh, i already got all the chestnuts so I'll just you know get some of the <laughs> rare stuff but anyway sorry to distract from the ben i'm sure you had a question i just wanted to bring that up no i mean i think all of us all three of us could probably talk about chestnuts and tree crops for, for a long time i i guess i just wanted to ask a little bit more about the silvopasture 
uh, research. And is there anything you can share as far as the carbon sequestration uh, abilities of your silvopasture research plot, or is it still is the research still underway? It's definitely still underway, and you know, it, it's it definitely it takes time to really see the effects of carbon. You know, as we're learning, we're about five years in and we're doing the tests every two years to really see you know waiting that long to see if there's significant change and then you know measuring different depths of the soil so getting the first one to two inches but then also testing about foot down to see where the different layers of, of carbon are are getting sequestered and you know all, in addition to the carbon soil testing also, like you all were talking about, looking into some of the different seedlings that we've got of the chestnuts and which are some of the more promising uh, seedlings and monitoring their growth, monitoring the number and size of the nuts, monitoring different ways of actually growing the trees in terms of protection, especially when integrating in with grazing animals. And so really looking at, you know, the best ways to set up systems like this. And I will say it's, it's great in my experience to have to work with a dedicated animal brazer. And so I think that this partnership really works out where there's someone that's running the animals through and that's what they're focusing on. We are, we're able to bring income in right away with the, the sale of the lamb. We just started, my colleague Nikki Burton just started a a meat CSA that's run out of UMass. So the first pickup is actually this winter. And so that was that's a way for, for people that are interested in, in this as a for viability as a for income streams, really looking at getting that the meat going while the nuts are starting to grow. And then now we're really starting to see the nuts come in. But we did have that the income with the lamb right away. Well, that's exciting that you're starting to see income from the meat. And then now you're also starting to see the production from the trees. I feel like there should be some certificate or stamp on the meat saying it's beyond organic, beyond just grass-fed or local. It's like, this is silvopasture meat. I feel like that's something that hopefully will be in, in demand soon soon enough. I mean, you think about the Iberico ham in Spain right. and how that's fed acorns and, and grown in and around tree pastures, and they can command a really high price. So I hope that in the future we see agroforestry meats that can sort of command higher prices than everything else out there. Just to provide some context for, for listeners, the idea with silvopasture in the case of tree crop and for carbon sequestration is that, so number one, the, the trees can, once they've developed a canopy, can shade the grasses and also the animals. And it provides, in some cases, more grass for the animals to eat or, or more tender grass for the animals to eat, and then also shades the animals from heat stress in the summer. On the other hand, the animals can fertilize the trees and nitrogen is really important for carbon sequestration. So that's why I think silvopasture is one of the higher carbon agroforestry practices for that very reason. And it's also a you know great way to use land because like you mentioned, you know, you're getting two income sources, the meat and the and the nuts. Yeah. And I love the name bread tree the, for the Oh farm. yeah, that's um Russell Wallach's the bread tree farm. So Lisa, why specifically did you choose lamb to incorporate in the system? Like why sheep? You know, why not chickens or 
some other type of fowl or you know pigs perhaps why did you guys opt for sheep i'm wondering well they, we do actually have chickens and turkeys and pigs on the farm as well specifically lamb you know just because of one of the factors is doing the slaughter at the end of the season and this being a, a viable option for a lot of farmers you know we're mainly an education farm you know we we do make income the students generate income from the sale of the meat and the crops and uh, we run a, a community supported agriculture share umass has a student farm csa and so that's all student run so students actually get to learn every aspect of the farm from the planning and the marketing and the accounting and the tracking and, and, and the crop planning rotations to the sale of the vegetables and so lamb as opposed to goats is a little bit easier and we don't have someone living 24 7 on the farm and so having lamb as opposed to goats you know they're less prone to escape in in the middle of the night and also we're getting that the sale of the meat but when you were talking about prices for some of these products you know we do have high high demand we're always sold out of the lamb and I, I expect the same thing of the chestnuts we started a collaboration with the dining commons and so we have been running a meal every fall called the diet for a cooler planet and so this I've been um, doing with a colleague of mine, Dan Bensonoff. We're really doing a lot of education work around this idea of carbon farming and people getting to choose foods and making some dietary choices and the impact that has on the planet and on cooling the planet, mitigating climate change. And so every year we work with chefs. And I think that this is almost a, a missing piece that doesn't get talked about a lot about with agroforestry and even forest gardening is really making use of some of these vegetables that might not be used to, to cooking with and making them palatable and delicious and nutritious at the same time. So we're lucky enough to have a whole crew of talented chefs at UMass Dining, and we've been working pretty closely with the chefs to develop recipes. One of the things we're also growing at the Carbon Farming Initiative is Jerusalem artichokes, sunchokes. And so we've worked with the chefs there to figure out different recipes and ways to use that, as well as when we do the diet for the cooler planet, really framing it as a plant forward menu and having the lamb and some of the other pastured meats as more of a, you know, a topping on an hors d'oeuvre or a small amount rather than a, you know, a huge 12 ounce ribeye on the, on the plate. So really also thinking intentionally about ways that the food is grown and rotating animals through the pasture so that they're not building up nitrogen in the soil, but, but instead spreading it out as they graze and spreading the fertilizer and also encouraging root dieback when they're, they're eating the grass and the, you know, the accumulation of carbon that way. So, you know, not only thinking about the way that the food is grown, but also how much of it and really framing it not as this way, and I think this is what permaculture does really well, it's really an abundance mindset. And so we're not trying to say, okay, because of climate change, you can never, ever eat meat or you have to eat and deny yourself. We're like, no, actually, 
this is a really delicious way of, of cooking and thinking about food. And not only are we intentional with how we grow it, but also what and how we're preparing it. Have there been any recipes or preparations or selection of interesting vegetables so far that, that stick out to you or have been your favorite? I definitely think, you know, using chestnuts, you know, mixed in with different stir fries, also with the with uh, lamb as well is a really interesting way to, to prepare it. Like, like you said, you know, we've been used to eating chestnuts roasted around the holiday season, but haven't really eaten it as, as, you know, cut up and prepared in a, in a rice dish. And so I think, I think the Jerusalem artichoke, having it as an hors d'oeuvre and having it uh, thinly sliced. Also thinking about mass production, when we're thinking about going beyond just the family dinner table, you know, how are these products getting prepared in mass and served in, in places like dining commons or restaurants and thinking about a little bit of mechanization with, with the Jerusalem artichoke and being able to uh, throw that through a, pr- a food processor and slice it up in a way that, that is quick to, to cook and serve. Other, other vegetables that I think are, you know, as my friend Eric would say, ready for prime time, sea kale is really one of my my favorite perennial vegetables. And I could see that being served. And I'm not sure why people aren't growing it more and, and using it in restaurants. I, I can see that crop becoming a, a favorite for, for local food, local foodies. I think once people are educated on, or maybe even just try these, these foods for the first time uh, or prepared in a new way, might help them sort of become more amenable to growing them or buying, seeing them at a farmer's market and buying them. I think for people who do do grow, once they realize how some of these tree crops or perennial vegetables, yes, they require additional establishment time, but you know, once they are established, I feel like th- there's, a, there's a learning curve in the beginning, but there, the payoff can be in the case of sea kale or chestnut trees, especially, I mean, very long-term yes. production with fairly minimal inputs. Seeing the the chestnuts in the at the research center in Missouri produce just like you know heavy heavy crops on years where it was fairly dry maybe there was a little bit of irrigation it doesn't normally need irrigation but with fairly minimal input just very heavy crops of calorie dense high nu- highly nutritious food and I, I compare that to the model that we have right now for conventional annual crops and of course we do need you know some some annual crops for certain purposes and you know that does warrant their inputs but seeing the the ROI on something like growing growing chestnuts or growing sea kale it's to me it's a no-brainer we should be doing a lot more of it oh definitely we I took my forest gardening class out to a farm in Amherst Sunset Farm he's growing it's a more has more American chestnut in in the trees but he's growing a variety that he's been growing for about 40 years he planted, you know, dozens and dozens of them 40 years ago. And now he's got about six trees that he's mainly harvesting off of. And so he took my class down there and, you know, we spent the whole two hours knocking chestnuts off the tree, picking up chestnuts off the ground. You know, there was probably 26 of us doing that for a full two hours and still many nuts on the trees. And so he, he's got it as, you know, it's a pick your own crop. 
it's a pick your own for a lower amount per pound, or you can buy pre, you know, pre-picked and husk chestnuts. And so like you're saying, yeah, he planted them 40 years ago, minimal, minimal maintenance. He doesn't even, I think he does one treatment of fertilizer in the spring and that's it. Still producing 2000 pounds a year. He's getting off of these few trees wow. and, and that's his cash crop for the whole farm. Well, I hope no one got hit with a one of those spiky holes that day. We, we definitely, definitely, we one. wore hats. Um, oh, you did? Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, because that's one way people can get turned off from, from chestnuts. If it, it can definitely draw blood if you if it hits the wrong spot. Oh, definitely. Spiky, spiky balls of doom. So Lisa, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Amherst Common Share Food Co-op? Yeah, so, you know, it's, you know, like they say in permaculture, it's all connected. And yeah, that's a, a project that I'm really excited about is bringing to Amherst a worker and consumer-owned cooperative. And we're, if we're thinking about, you know, if we're thinking about creating change in the world, and if we're thinking about the magnitude of change that needs to happen, if we're concerned about a resilient food system or concerned about resiliency in terms of, you know, living in the era of climate change, one of the things we really need to have is community-owned everything, right? We can't depend on privately owned for-profit entities that are frankly ruining, ruining a lot of the things on the, on the planet right now and, and just this endless growth model of capitalism. And so one of the things I've been excited about and been working in is, is the co-op movement. And so I see this fitting in nicely with forest gardeners, uh, fitting in nicely with agroforesters, as a place that, you know, statistically has been shown, and this has been research that was done by the UN, done by the Yes Magazine, of co-ops really sourcing from local growers, local producers, more so than conventional grocery stores. And so buying food from local growers, but also recirculating that money in the local economy. So, you know, if people buy chestnuts from bread tree farms, that money also gets pumped back into the economy by, you know, perhaps buying another farmer's sea kale. And that sea kale gets put into some chestnut loaves that were baked at the local bakery and, and so on and so forth. And then the co-op really is that central hub of distribution and also a place for a community space for people to come together. And so the market is we've got about 800 member owners of the co-op right now. And we're starting a, a campaign with a, a UMass class in the spring to get the final 200 members that we need to get to a thousand members to really secure a site and start a capital campaign to open the store. There's a lot of, a lot more co-ops that are going in the tr into the worker owned model. And so you know, most people are familiar with a consumer-owned co-op where you pay $100 or $150 and you're a, um, a voting member of the co-op and you get special discounts and, and all that. Well, this also will be owned by the workers in addition to consumers. And so I really see that as a transformational model of employment that really changes the way we think about jobs and bosses and really kind of leans in if we're getting more into the philosophy of forest gardening and thinking about things like mutual aid and symbiosis, worker co-ops, 
really demonstrate that in an economic sense and in ways that people can actually work synergistically instead of hierarchically and is a is a really interesting way to explore some of the transformational ways of cooperating and living together and doing this through a cooperative owned business. So that is that's a project that's that's underway that I could see being a big boost to the local food economy. Yeah, I love what you were saying about specifically about taking the, you know, what we consider to be currency and just exchanging it only through local hands. I recently saw this documentary called Tomorrow, which is a French documentary. And in it, they they talk about like local currencies and this movement of local currencies where it was, you know, about this idea of advancing global sustainability by doing, you know, exactly that, just to make sure that all the money was only changing hands amongst the people that it really mattered in this community. And they did that through creating like the, the Bristol pound, which was just a made up printed currency that they exchanged and eventually turned into a real thing. Have you heard of this, the local currency? Yeah, we, we, we actually have in, in Great Barrington, there's the Berkshire, the Berkshire wow. buck. And, and actually Amherst back in the day used to have its own local currency. Oh that goodness. would be accepted by the local cafes. And some, some of that is, is coming back. And actually it's in the form of like a credit card instead of actually paper money. And so there is a group that's operating out of Ashfield, totally blanking on what it's called, but um, that's a really exciting project where they're um, also, if I'm understanding it correctly, leveraging the fees so you know if you use a credit card in small businesses they get charged a a, a fee every time you make a transaction is it common um, well this yeah thank you thank you did you just look that up or yes i, I did I, I just googled it um but okay yeah. cool yeah yeah common yeah good? yeah common good and so common good is now being accepted in Amherst. simple gifts is is using it and so every year they, they kind of take all of those fees and they're able to redistribute the funds and support other local projects. So they put solar panels on some local businesses. And I think that the members of Common Good get to vote on where they want that surplus money to go to. So it's really, I think, you know, that a necessary next step in, in thinking about economics if we're really interested in combating climate change and really rethinking the way that our whole society works. Agreed. Yeah, I, I appreciate the sort of holistic view you take and it's not just about, you know, uh, getting the plants ready to go and getting them in the ground. It's about getting the communities together, the economical <laughs> or economic ecosystems, if that's a phrase together to understand how we can actually truly make a sustainable or regenerative change uh, that we want to see because I think if we have tunnel vision and just focus on one of those areas it's likely to fail but if we sort of pull from many different disciplines and different aspects that's the highest likelihood of success and that's what permaculture teaches and that's I'm glad that I have that foundation and and you have that foundation as well because I think it teaches us that you sort of need to have multiple components in place to uh, to get where you need to go so thank you for all the, the great work you're doing in the world. Thank you, Ben, Michael. 
if there's anything that you'd like to plug in terms of, you know, where people can find you, your website, or even if like the courses at UMass, if there's any students that are listening. I mean, I think if, if people want to get hands-on experience in permaculture design and earn a bachelor's of science coming to UMass and studying with us at the Stockbridge School of Agriculture with the sustainable food and farming program is a really ex- excellent way where you can earn a college degree and get your hands dirty and really, really, really learn the stuff, not just in the classroom, but, but actually out in the field and learn from established sites. We've got a over 10-year-old forest garden, several of them, as well as integrated animals in with tree crops, as well as, you know, vineyards and apple orchards and, and uh, state apiaries. So come study with us at, at the Stockbridge School at UMass. You can find out more about my work, some of my writing, and some of my other media materials at lisamariedepiano.com. And if you're interested in finding out more about the Common Share Food Co-op or becoming a member and and helping us get that much closer to opening the store, you can go to commonsharefood.coop. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. This was such an awesome conversation. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Ben.